everybody, welcome to Just Start Podcast. Really appreciate you being here. Today is a very, very special interview for me because it's actually with Dr. Saltz, who is a prominent psychologist in the field down here in South Florida. And he works with patients from all over the world with Zoom and our technology with where we're at right now. I think it's something that is very needed. And so we have a slew of questions that you sent in. Thank you if you did send those in because we're gonna get to a word from our sponsors and you're gonna be receiving some gift cards. So Delivery Dudes, Delray Beach and Boca Raton, Uber Eats and Major Fitness Performance. So if you're an athlete, if you're somebody who isn't an athlete and you wanna get uh, in shape, Major Performance would be fantastic. Check the link in the bio, check the website. There's gonna be some camps this summer once CDC guidelines are uh, put into play for some of the gymnasiums beach workouts and park workouts. That'll be coming to you probably in July. Major Performance, Uber Eats, and Delray Beach Delivery Dudes, our sponsors. Thank you for being on the show. You're most welcome. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into the medical field, specifically psychiatry? Yes. When I was in medical school, I was actually headed to be an internist, and I found myself being much more interested and paying a lot more attention to human behavior and how people adapt to and cope to illness than actually whether it was important to give them tetracycline or ampicillin or some cardiac glycoside. So after I finished medical school, I did a year of training in internal medicine hmm. and then decided to go full-fledged into psychiatry and switch training programs and went into that field. Do you have any recommendations for someone? Um, we have a couple students who asked about going into that. They're like, should I study psychology? Should I study something attached to that? I, I think the real truth is that, that medical school people are looking for students that are intelligent, that have a thirst for learning, that are capable of learning, especially large volumes of material, but also potentially well-rounded people hmm. as well. It's certainly important to have the nerd-like scientists among us in, <laughs> in our profession, but it's also important to have people that have real good, solid interpersonal skills and knowledge about other things in the world. So I think medical schools are really interested not only in good grades and a capacity to learn, but they also are interested in people that have a passion about something. Mm. And that passion could be about just about anything, really. What is it that you find in, in your field um, and even right now with COVID-19, what, what, what are some of the major issues that you see that people are having? Well, certainly everybody in the United States and all over the world are, are stressed with the issue of worry about getting sick with, mm. uh, with an illness that has no known ready cure. So mm -hmm. your body is actually going to handle the illness in a way that you could recover or, or it's not. Mm. I think the isolation associated with the coronavirus illness is helping some people that are that have lots of social anxiety and just now have their free excuse to not have to intermingle so much. Mm -hmm. uh, but for a lot of people, the stressors are uh, of so many different varieties, being at home with young children, having to take care of them, while if you still have a job, being able to work from home and not be interrupted. Yeah. And if you don't have a job worrying about money and whether or not you're going to be able to go back to work in eight weeks or 12 weeks or mm. need some new profession in six months from now. Yeah. So the stressors come from so many different sources. It's interesting you said that because uh, I have some students actually that are in college. They're at FA FAU. They're at Lynn. They said that they struggle with social uh, pressure. They struggled with going out and meeting people and even having like a steady relationship. They felt like they were loners. 
And they said in the beginning, this was nice because they could just kind of do everything virtually and remain, you know, introverted a little bit because that's where it's, it's comfortable for them. But now it's getting out of control with video games, getting sucked into like the video life late at night mm-hmm. and some of the poor habits that are there because they're getting no social stimulation. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? Well, it's an interesting challenge. I, I think I, I'm not a, a technology expert and I'm not a child and adolescent expert, but, mm-hmm. I, but I will say that in all of life, I think it is important to have a, a balance of, across a number of different domains. Mm-hmm. We need to have a time for socializing. We need to have a time for studying. We need to have a time for exercise. Mm-hmm. So I think that anybody who finds himself in a, in a position where his life is becoming filled with one thing only and nothing else without any balance is a person who's on a pathway to some type of potential danger for the balance of his life. And that needs to raise some red flags and you need to ask some questions. Uh, What can I do to make my life a little bit better balanced? Right. With with some of the younger population, um, even for parents, because most of my questions were from single parents, a lot of moms, and they're just trying to connect with their daughter. They're trying to connect with their son. And they said, well, we thought that this whole time of social isolation would be good for the family. And it is the exact opposite. We're getting into explosive arguments over the dinner table. Uh, One little thing turns into a mountainous argument. And what can they do about that? For one thing, I think it's important for parents and children to to remember that those are two different positions in a family. Mm-hmm. My father used to have a joke in my family when I was growing up. He, he always said, this is a democracy. And then he would smile and on the side he would say, but some of us are more equal than others. <laughs> and my perspective on this is that uh, parents do have some responsibility to make sure that their children's lives have some appropriate structure. Right. We have developed over the last generation or two this sense that me, 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 everything that I do is okay. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. It's just what I do. Right. And, and, and I don't believe that. I actually believe that, that we have rights and opportunities, but we also have responsibilities. Mm. And we need to try to educate our children about the balance between opportunity and privilege and, and responsibility. Now, the other piece to that, I think, has to do with dialogue. I think it's important to try to to teach at least the children that are old enough to have any form of meaningful communication mm. that dialogue is important. Yeah, We need to be able to listen to some of the concerns of our children, but we also need to be able to set some rules and some boundaries with them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's really interesting uh, what you were saying about parents trying to connect with uh, their their child. And during this time, I think at any time, it's just difficult. I'm not a parent, right? But I feel like as a teacher, I'm a parent to 150 kids every year. And I'm kind of this liaison between them, the student, and their parents. I'm having some moms ask me, like, what would you do in this? I tell them right away, well, I'm not a parent and I can't tell you. But they're like, we know that. But you, you see Ben and... I want to be in on this secret life that they're having because if they're writing essays and they're journaling, like I need to know how I can meet them in that area of need because they don't want to go to their parents because they know like it's like in rehab, right? Like with addiction, addicts get really good at lying and deceiving themselves into thinking, oh, I don't have a problem. And then to everyone else, they're doing the same thing. And those people, they don't want to let them in because the first step of addiction is what? Admitting you have a problem. Like, hey, I am Jordan. I'm addicted to running from my anxiety. 
and doing a million and one things until I eventually crash, right? To those parents from these questions, especially with active listening and like really listening to your kid, what would you say to any of those points brought up? The biggest theme that emerges in, in my work with adults that doesn't have to do only with biological symptoms and medicine for that is achieving an appropriate balance between authority and responsibility. Mm. That authority and freedom is something that we all want to have, but there's no such thing as authority without some sense of responsibility. So consider the extremes. If you uh, were Adolf Hitler, you somehow achieved all of this authority and freedom with no responsibility until finally the world came around and said, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. uh, you've gone far, but you've finally gone too far and we're done. Mm -hmm. And then they take you out of all of that freedom and hold you accountable or responsible. That's interesting because like, I know Carl Jung, right? Jungian psychology talks about the shadow and he actually talked to a great deal about that idea and concept with the Holocaust that, well, it was put together by humans. The Holocaust was drafted by humans. I'm a human. If I'm a part of the human race, I need to understand that I have a capacity for anger, that if I allowed it to go there, not that I'd be an Adolf Hitler, but I need to keep that stuff in check. For sure. To finish the thread and then come back to anger itself. So the, the other piece of the puzzle the other side of the coin from authority and freedom is responsibility and personal right. responsibility. So imagine a situation where you finish school, you, go, you get your first job in, in your early 20s, and someone hires you with a great opportunity. You get a, a nice starting salary, and they say, you can have this job, and we want you to accomplish this, this, and this, and it looks mm -hmm. like you're talented enough. That's why we've selected you mm -hmm. among hundreds of applicants. And then you begin your work, and you realize that you could actually do that job, but there are certain resources that have to be mobilized in order to make it possible. There are certain things you cannot do without the tools. Mm -hmm. So then you go to your employer or your supervisor and you say, we can definitely do this, but I can't possibly do it without this tool or that tool. And, they, and the employer says to you, well, tough. So not gonna happen. So now you're in a position where you have all of this responsibility, mm. uh, but you have no authority or freedom to be able to execute the job and get it done. Mm. So that's the opposite of the Hitler problem. That's the opposite of having so much freedom and authority to do things and no responsibility to, to do it right or to be a good person in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So in so many relationships between uh, uh, adults and their families or adults and their employers or adults and their children or children and their parents, there is so frequently a mismatch between authority and responsibility. Mm. And so one of the things that I encourage parents to do is to, <laughs> is to talk with their children about the concepts of, of freedom and responsibility, mm. and then to see how that applies to the conflicts that are emerging at their dinner table. Yeah, if there is a dinner table. I think that's a good start. That's another part of the boundary setting because that, in, in my sense, is part of the, the responsibility part of growing up. Uh, and, it's, and it's part of the responsibility part of being an adult. Mm -hmm. If you don't create some opportunity to be able to be with your children at some point or another, you've essentially given them freedom to make all the decisions ab about their lives uh, when they're too young to know exactly how to do that safely and effectively. Right. 
And it's funny because what I see a lot of, especially with, um, sorry, the in the lecture halls, the most explosive lectures and roundtables that I've been, been able to be a part of with college students, and it's usually the girls who are uh, less reluctant, right? The boys usually don't get as involved, but the girls are very quick to, to ask the questions and to kind of gear uh, the lecture, and, it, and, it, and it's based on that. One girl said, well, I feel like I'm just dating uh, who I want, who I wanted my father to be. And then another girl goes, that's not my problem. I find that I am dating people who I actually can't stand and I want to fix up just like my father, mm-hmm. which you can have a holiday with, mm-hmm. right? So one thing that I, I found was, and it sounds weird, but they say, and the clinical research I'm sure has tons on this, to date your children in, in, a, in a sense where you take them for coffee. You have one-on-one time where you go to a movie and then you talk about that movie. You ask them about, hey, so are you still friends with so-and-so? Why? Mm-hmm. Why not? Mm-hmm. What happened? Mm-hmm. Be involved in your children's lives. Uh, that, that is absolutely critically important. And don't ever forget that even when it looks like your children are not listening to you, and that's more characteristic of the teen years than in the, the elementary school years, they still hear you, even though they're not acknowledging that they're listening to you. Mm. So if you are consistent with your behavior, you are consistent with the values that you espouse, and you put some appropriate boundaries into their lives that will always be respected by them. Yeah. And they won't tell you that, but it, they, it will have a big impact. A single mom, actually, who has a couple kids and has just been monitoring them like crazy because she's like finding stuff on their Snapchat that's not good. And she's seeing stuff like from old, you know, older people like messaging them on Instagram and she's monitoring it. And she's like, when am I going to stop being the bad guy? Mm-hmm. Like, th- like, there's got to be a time where I'm friends with my kid because that's what I want it to be. I want to be able to be friends. I don't want to just be as a single parent, the authoritarian all the time. You know, it's an interesting challenge uh, for parents in general and for single parents in particular. But I really believe that. You can be close with your child, but you are not your child's friend. I just don't subscribe to the idea Mm. that this is an equal relationship. Mm. It is not an equal relationship. Children are not, they don't even have the brain development capability of doing all the things they need to do to balance that sense of responsibility and authority in the Mm. world. We have got to provide a structure for them. Uh, We can give them graded exposures to freedom. Uh, graded exposures to things that they demonstrate that they have the responsibility that they can handle and fulfill. Mm -hmm. And if they can't, then we show them why you can't have this freedom because you don't demonstrate the capacity for the responsibility. And when you start behaving like you can be responsible for that level of freedom, you can have that freedom. Yeah. Which isn't that a business model? Absolutely. That that is an absolute business model where people who are successful bosses and managing a a large company that has a family relationship and dynamic, it is that authority and it's that level of responsibility. And can you meet those tasks? And then intervening even, which is social emotional learning is not just in schools. It starts in the home. It leads into schools. And then the trifecta is then the community and business. For sure. And it's kind of a top-down hierarchy. And a lot of people are like, oh, we don't like hierarchies. It's like tough. I, uh, I was told by my, my former um, boss and now mentor, uh, Dr. McKee, uh, he had said his philosophy in the classroom was always this. If a student was failing, it was his fault. Same thing. And he told them, 
and sat them down and said, you're not failing, I'm failing you. And how can you help me get you to cross that finish line? I love that approach. <laughs> it's a good business model. One core principle that comes up, particularly in the, in the more dynamic insight-oriented personal growth forms of therapy is a concept called transference mm. and another concept called counter-transference. So transference is a concept that means that a person who comes to a therapist's office brings a history of life experience and exposure, attitude and expectation, and then looks at the, at the therapist and assigns uh, certain attitudes and expectations to that therapist, whether that therapist has those attitudes and expectations or not. Yeah. It's what we bring forth based on our previous life experience. I mean, there are so many cues that, that can make a, a particular person seem like another person in the prior part of your life. Well, bringing those attitudes and expectations, we, we make certain things happen or come true uh, because of those attitudes and expectations that we bring forward. And so one of the jobs of the therapist in dynamic therapies is to do what we call analyze the transference to understand what are these expectations and attitudes that you bring in that may have nothing to do with how I actually think or feel, mm. uh, but that you're assigning to me. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of that equation is uh, what happens with the, with the therapist or the doctor, because doctors also have a life of experience and they bring their attitudes and expectations to the, to the patients that, that are sitting before them. And sometimes those attitudes and expectations are right on spot and sometimes they're distorted and, and we get it wrong. So professional people are trained to understand where their blind spots are. And if they do it correctly, they will, uh, they will modify and adapt their views and expectations because it's a fluid learning situation as they're trying to help somebody else. But a person who is the patient doesn't necessarily have that depth and breadth of life experience to be able to see what their blind spots are to correct for them. Mm. So that therapy process is designed it has there are, there are many purposes to to therapy and there are many techniques that we have to pay attention to but one of them is understanding uh, what is the transference that is emerging in this relationship and what are my attitudes and expectations and feelings about this person and which of them are valid and accurate and which may be distorted for one reason or another that i have to account for as a blind spot based on what you're saying i know that there are people that young people, I think people in their 20s, as you, you know, the prefrontal starts to fully develop, right? And you start to really become like who you are and um, mental illness even starts to really spike, I think, like in early 20s, like in college settings. Late teens and early 20s often. Late teens and early 20s. Mm -hmm. And so there's a mental health crisis on, on campuses and kids are kind of like drinking and numbing their pain. Um, juuling even, you know, it used to be cigarettes and we eradicated cigarettes and then juuling came out of nowhere and it's so easy to conceal. And now, you know, instead of sneaking out to the backyard and having a cigarette and coming back in and playing video games, you can smoke the entire time you're awake and people do it because it's something that stimulates them. Um, for somebody who struggles with anxiousness, stress, insecurity, procrastination, and they start to do those things where they're waking up and they're getting right into that for self-negotiation and kind of to what you were saying before from a business model, because before the business, like you go into business as a boss, you're always making, you're your business owner, right? And you have to self-negotiate and self-care. And it, um, I feel like that's something that we can maybe dive into. Well, uh, just 
loosely associating to some of the cues you just gave me with your question, I, I might say that human beings and human behavior are really, in my estimation, driven by, by two or three primary fundamentals. Uh, one has to do with a person's own biology and temperament. So my perspective on biology and temperament looks something like this. If you're a parent and you have two children and one is two years old and one is three mm -hmm. and someone comes knocking at the door, one child may go straight to the front door and say, hi, my name's Sally and shake your hand. And the other child might grab mommy's leg and hide behind mommy's leg. Now, it's possible, but not that likely that at the ages of two and three, that these two children have had such different social upbringings already to explain those different behaviors. So those are temperamental inborn genetic biological differences between those two children that are expressing themselves very early in life. Right. So one dimension or domain that I think about in terms of human behavior is the concept of uh, the inborn temperament, because that is going to shape a lot of things through your life de development, from your learning to your friendships to, uh, to your work world later. Mm. That also becomes the basis for some of the biological symptoms of mental illness later, because not all mental illnesses are because mom didn't raise you right or dad was abusive to you. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, mental illnesses that are inborn uh, genetic or biological, biologically predetermined variables like like schizophrenia, for example, and the development of hallucinations at the age of 17 or 19 or 21 is not because your mother loved you or didn't love you. Mm. That's a that disease schizophrenia comes online late. It's a it's thought to be a developmental disorder of a kind and it's a psychotic disorder. But it's such a it has such a strong bio, biological diathesis that it has very little to do with the way you were socially raised or 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 how healthy your psychology was when you were 14 or 15 hmm. before it came online. Then there's another whole dimension of human development, which I tend to think about more like personality, that, the, that personality is the part of our development that is shaped by the temperament for sure, mm -hmm. because if we're a high energy person versus a low energy person, our life trajectory is going to be a little bit different. Right. But personality, in my estimation, is largely about what we learn. It's how we are socialized. And those two are like uh, like a Venn diagram. They overlap each other in very powerful and considerable ways. So some forms of psychotherapy uh, that we do are, are targeted towards coping with our biological imperatives or predispositions. And some forms of psychotherapy are about unlearning the bad habits that we learned uh, as we were being socialized and, and we're developing. And then there's one third domain that I just want to introduce, and then you can follow up with this in, in any way you want, mm. which is the concept of what the external world does to us. Uh, personality mm. is, is largely about the external world, but not only. It's also about, about our thirst for learning about we talk to this person versus we were exposed to this person in school or in our families. Mm -hmm. Um, then there's the external world, which today, you know, we could look at, at COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic. That's having a profound impact on, on the entire civilization of the earth. And so when you have something that powerful or maybe something more local, like a physically abusive mother or a physically or emotionally abusive father when you're growing up, then that's a whole nother set of circumstances that gets part of that, that Venn diagram that needs to get sorted out. Right. And so... When, when we meet people in the mental health arena who have a symptom or who are uncomfortable or who are not functioning at their optimal level, uh, this is a tool or a technique that we can begin to apply by 
analyzing what are the biological imperatives of that person's genetics, if you will. What is the, the personality style of the person that, that shapes how that biology gets expressed? And what were the frank exposures that they have had? Uh, for some people, they were true traumas mm -hmm. uh, or neglect. And for other people, there were more subtle characteristics that, that shaped their personality development and how their biology is, is expressing itself mm. in late adolescence and early adulthood. With all of that, because that I'm trying to wrap my head around it, just personally, beyond anyone else, you can ask my wife, I, it's taken me 30 years to figure out who I really am and why. I had a panic attack at the airport just when I was checking into security. And since then, I had a couple episodes of panic where I fainted and... Um, my wife had to carry me to see, and I, I thought like I had a brain tumor. I, I, was, I thought I was dying. That's what it felt like. And at the point where my, in my professional career, like where things were really going well, my personal life was an absolute mess. And I'm an extrovert to the max. I think it's hard for me to be quiet and to be still. And so a lot of what you said, I think for even me has just been super healing. There's some powerful constructs and there are some things that we can learn to overcome on our own. And there are some things that we cannot really master without some type of professional help to put it into context. I think it's because a couple of years ago when I did go to um, a counselor and I, I had shared with him and her, there was a couple about some of the stuff that I had been carrying in, in my relationship. And the first thing she said was, what's wrong with you? And it was kind of in a judgmental way, like, you're fine. So stop like, like, oh, okay, stop being anxious. Thank you. Perfect. Like I could respond to that, you know, sure. and I stop think stop having brown hair. Stop. Right. <laughs> Just, you know, stop doing. Yeah. Cause anxiety is uncontrollable. It's unpredictable and it's flat out mean on the surface. I think finding the right psychiatrist is kind of like finding it's like speed dating. But you have to give them a chance. And I think I wasn't giving some of you and your profession a chance. I, I don't know why. I was very resistant to it. Attitudes and expectations that were uninformed. Mm. Why do you think patients like me, when I was struggling with that, do that? Well, getting back to the transferential concept, uh, we, we do approach other people with attitudes and expectations uh, and we develop those attitudes and expectations based on our own life experiences. Sometimes we're insightful and sometimes we're spot on and we have good instinctual assessments about what a situation is, but that's only true some of the time. Mm. So oftentimes we have attitudes and expectations that are, that are erroneous and unless, unless we learn about the fallacy and you know, the premise that we built it upon, then we're just going to keep going down that pathway and not correcting it. Yeah. Some of my family members and myself are really good at talking about our problem and saying, oh, I know I'm this. I know I did this. It was wrong. It was bad. Check. I put it out there. It's kind of like confession. You know, when you go to confession, there, there's a, you get things off your chest. And sometimes people do that. And they're like, oh, I did that. Now I'm clean. I'm forgiven. Move on. And I think we do that in marriages and relationships a lot maybe even sometimes with kids. I know there are some fathers that have high expectations for their kids and it's a performance-based parenting style where 
you do these things and then I treat you a certain way um, where other people have the mentality of love first, do second. Well, if, if you're putting it in the form of a question, I guess you're asking, you know, are different parenting styles valid or is there always mm-hmm. one way or is there more than one way to raise a child? Right. And, and I think the, the answer to that's a little complicated because I, th- I think being a parent in so many ways is not unlike being a teacher as you are, that you know that your students have different learning capabilities and different learning styles. Right. Some child might be a great auditory learner and another child might be a terrible auditory learner, but a great visual learner. Mm-hmm. And, some, and some other child might have a lot of anxiety and unless the anxiety is quelled, there's gonna be no room for learning at all. Right. So for one thing, uh, being a parent, uh, one needs to, if one really wants to be a good parent, one needs to be thoughtful about what it means to be a parent. Mm. And, and to be a parent means that you have to make a safe environment for your child and you have to keep that child safe until a certain point where that child can provide for his or her own safety. Yeah. And the next thing is you have to provide some uh, opportunity for that child and you have to provide a climate uh, for not only the, the physical development and, and being fed, but also for the emotional development. Mm. And emotional development, in my estimation, of course, as a mental health professional, is equally as important as, as all of the physical parts, like having enough food and having shelter. Right. So as a parent, we, we have to adapt our style on how to raise our children uh, based not only on what our own attitudes and expectations are, but what the children's needs are. Uh, so for example, you know, this is a far-fetched example, but say on the issue of, of uh, teenage sexuality and the emergence of homosexuality, mm-hmm. uh, if, if there's a, a, ch- a parent who is completely inflexible and is homophobic in a sense, then you're not gonna give any room for, for your uh, genetically predetermined a uh, homosexually evolving child to be able to express himself or be loved or have a place in the world. So if you are that if you have that level of flexibility, you're going to raise an unhealthy child. So the 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 point and that's just one of a million examples of mm-hmm. our own expectations. There there mm-hmm. are things that like you said about uh, not perfectionism wasn't your word but about expectations for school performance for performance. example. I, I think we need to set some guidelines and some boundaries. There are th- certain things that all human beings have to master in order to grow up and, and have a, a reasonably healthy, balanced life. Mm. You have to be able to communicate with other human beings. You have to develop some type of skill set. And unless you know how to build your own house and, and grow your own food, mm-hmm. then you're going to have to be able to fit into the world in some way where you can earn enough money to pay somebody else to grow your food and somebody else to build your house. Right. So there are a lot of things that have to come together in order for you to be able to do that consistently and reliably in adulthood. And our job as parents is to, is to set a stage for you to learn the fundamental things that you need to be able to do to be able to launch into autonomy and independence later. And there are many things that you as a child, either because of uh, emotional problems or because of biological problems and medical problems or because of environmental problems that may interfere with your ability to make that progression. And our job as a parent is to remember that we have to help you get there. Okay, excellent. So. With anxiety, the, all, all of the questions, and it's, it's overwhelming. They're parent questions, college students, high schoolers. 
And I think they're trying to understand what this this feeling is. And they're like, I think it's anxiety. I think it's anxiousness. And I know I'm stressed. I know I'm procrastinating stuff. And my teachers aren't liking me because of it. I'm starting to be- become a person. I'm, I'm even hanging with people who I avoided hanging out with. I'm starting to make decisions that are not beneficial to me. So anxiety, can you kind of walk us through? Let's let's talk about anxiety for a moment. So anxiety is a normal human emotion, such as joy or sadness. Anxiety is our mind's way of telling us that there may be a real danger or a real threat in the world. So for example, if my car gets stuck on the side of 95 because something dies and the exits are pretty far and the easiest way to get help is to cross the highway, jump over those bushes and get to that gas station. That's great. But when I see cars whirring by at 60 to 90 miles an hour coming from both sides and I feel a sense of anxiety that it may be danger, dangerous to cross the street, mm. that's a healthy adaptation. That That's a, a good thing to be anxious in in the face of real danger. Mm-hmm. But an anxiety disorder is is an extension of that and that we perceive or experience anxiety even out of proportion to the stimulus or where there is no stimulus at all, Mm. eliciting the anxiety inside of our minds and our bodies. So knowing the difference between what is a normal human emotion and what is uh, an, an aggravated, extended, or out of proportion or totally unrelated to the stimulus experience is very important. Now, Another component of that analysis has to do with what are the the concomitant characteristics. So for example, if I get sweaty palms and I lose my ability to speak in the presence of others in in a cocktail party or in any kind of party, uh, then that's a pretty extreme functional impairment that comes out in the presence of my being worried or anxious in that setting. And then of course, what what are the real dangers in that setting? The, in an anxiety disorder, we might have the perception that we're going to embarrass ourselves or make a fool of ourselves. That's the that's the, the the fundamental characteristic of what we might call social phobia or social anxiety. In panic disorder, we could have uh, sweaty palms, racing heart, uh, numbness sensations, or other neurological symptoms that become so overwhelming that that we can, that we almost get rendered dysfunctional. We feel like we might want to die. Uh, we feel like something horribly impendingly dangerous is happening and we end up in the emergency room thinking we're having a heart attack and then you get the the EKG and the blood test done and everything's normal and the doctor says what you have is a panic attack. So anxiety is a normal human emotion which can be uh, very exaggerated or completely out of proportion to the stimulus if there's any stimulus at all. So our job uh, as mental health professionals and, and our job as consumers of of healthcare services or of just living life, we need to understand where we fit in that spectrum. And if we're not sure, then we need to get some opinion uh, of a doctor or a healthcare professional uh, to be able to sort that out and then figure out what to do about it.